It is spring 1928. The warm salt air of the Mediterranean blows gently into Saint-Tropez. It isn't yet the Diguerre holiday resort of the rich and famous, but a quiet seaside town. The breeze has distracted a small middle-aged Russian Jew, writing her memoirs on the porch of Peggy Guggenheim's cottage. The smell of the ocean takes her back to a biting December day in 1885, 40 years earlier. She is standing on the deck of an ocean liner that had bought her and her sister from Russia to America. Watching her warm breath hit the cold air as Lady Liberty grows larger and larger. She was just a girl then, 16 years old. How much had happened between that moment and this? For that naive young immigrant became the anarchist Emma Goldman, the most dangerous woman in America. I consider anarchism the most beautiful and practical philosophy that has yet been thought of in its application to individual expression and the relation it establishes between the individual and society. Moreover, I am certain that anarchism is too vital and too close to human nature ever to die. It is my conviction that dictatorship, whether to the right or to the left, can never work, that it has never worked, and that time will prove this again, as it has been proved before. When the failure of modern dictatorship and authoritarian philosophies becomes more apparent and the realization of failure more general, anarchism will be vindicated. listening to She Speaks Volumes, the primer for 500 years of feminist philosophy, history, and theory. In this episode, we are reading excerpts from Emma Goldman's autobiography, Living My Life, Volume 1, and excerpts from an essay on anarchism. In this episode, Emma Goldman is being read by Halia Herniak. If you enjoy this episode, please consider donating to She Speaks Volumes using the Buy Me a Coffee link in the show notes and on the website barrelculturelab.com. Your donations help me pay the actors and the cost of production for the series. Emma Goldman was born June 27, 1869, in Kovno in the Russian Empire. She died May 14, 1940, in Toronto, Ontario, Canada. In her almost 70 years, she witnessed, often firsthand, World War I, the early part of World War II, the Russian Revolution, the Spanish Civil War, the rise and fall of American trade unions, the Depression, and the rise and rise of capitalism. She fought for workers' rights, wealth distribution long before it was a thing, campaigned for birth control and the rights of women. At heart, she was an anarchist, an idealist, and most surprisingly, a romantic. Yet she was called the most dangerous woman in America. But dangerous for who? Emma Goldman settled in Rochester. She found factory work and even married. But she left her husband and soon after left for New York. She was still just 20 years old. Emma had been deeply affected by the unjust treatment of the eight anarchists arrested in the Haymarket affair. And as soon as she arrived in New York, she sought out the anarchist movement there, headed up by Johann Most. 
Most and Goldman began an affair, the first of many she would have, but it was Most who started her off on her career as a speaker. He arranged her first tour, delivering his anarchist message to the small industrial towns of New York State. Emma left for her tour, anxious to impress Most, but very young she learned the damage that comes from being other-identified, from needing the approval of others, of men. The meeting was large and animated. It was a Saturday night, and the workers attended with their wives and children. The gist of my talk was the same as in Buffalo, but the form was different. It was a sarcastic arraignment, not of the system or of the capitalists, but of the workers themselves, their readiness to give up a great future for some small temporary gains. The audience seemed to enjoy being handled in such an outspoken manner. They roared in some places and in others vigorously applauded. It was not a meeting, it was a circus, and I was the clown. A man in the front row, who had attracted my attention by his white hair and lean, haggard face, rose to speak. He said that he understood my impatience with such small demands as a few hours less a day or a few dollars more a week. It was legitimate for young people to take time lightly. But what were men of his age to do? They were not likely to live to see the ultimate overthrow of the capitalist system. Were they also to forego the release of perhaps two hours a day from the hated work? That was all they could hope to see realized in their lifetime. Should they deny themselves even that small achievement? Should they never have a little more time for reading or being out in the open? Why not be fair to people chained to the block? The man's earnestness, his clear analysis of the principle involved in the eight-hour struggle, brought home to me the falsity of Most's position. I realized I was committing a crime against myself and the workers by serving as a parrot, repeating Most's views. I understood why I had failed to reach my audience. I had taken refuge in cheap jokes and bitter thrusts against the toilers to cover up my own inner lack of conviction. My first public experience did not bring the result most had hoped for, but it taught me a valuable lesson. It cured me somewhat of my childlike faith in the infallibility of my teacher and impressed on me the need of independent thinking. Upon Emma's return, she tries to tell most about her experiences, but he seems to view her newfound independence as a betrayal, and they part company. Some anarchist he is, but it probably speaks more to the inherent notion that women should be obedient. The late 18th and early 19th centuries marked huge industrial growth, and it seems incongruous to think that less than 25 years separates the publishing of Harriet Jacobs' Incident in the Life of a Slave Girl and Emma Goldman's Ocean Voyage to the U.S. Twenty-five years of intense industrialization, economic growth, and rapid urbanization. 
The conditions for workers at the turn of the last century were appalling. Long hours, atrocious work conditions, and low pay eroded lives and communities. For working class and poor people, living conditions were squalid. Women had no access to birth control, limited options for earning a living, and even less control over their income. As magnates raked in money through mining, construction, railroads, manufacturing, and trade, they glad-handed their way through government, ensuring their profit margins were safe. In this environment began the rise of the trade unions, workers banding together to ensure human rights, fair pay, and safe work conditions. This was the key focus of the anarchist movement and where they received most of their support. This was not the anarchy of the punks. It wasn't hardcore music in a fashion statement or even the ascension of the individual. And it wasn't the modern anarchy now associated with racism and nationalism. This was a movement focused on disbanding government and liberating the individual so they could freely construct communities and create economies that distributed wealth fairly. Anarchism, then, really stands for the liberation of the human mind from the dominion of religion, the liberation of the human body from the dominion of property, liberation from the shackles and the restraint of government. Anarchism stands for a social order based on the free grouping of individuals for the purpose of producing real social wealth an order that will guarantee to every human being free access to the earth and full enjoyment of the necessities of life, according to individual desires, tastes, and inclinations. This is not a wild fancy or an aberration of the mind. It is the conclusion arrived at by hosts of intellectual men and women the world over, a conclusion resulting from the close and studious observation of the tendencies of modern society. Individual liberty and economic equality, the twin forces for the birth of what is fine and true in man. I don't think anarchy would result in a lawless Mad Max society. I'm also not sure anarchy could be permanent. I think humans, by nature, are too cooperative. If all government institutions vanished from the earth, I think we would develop new ones. Community-structured policing, infrastructure administration and maintenance, new banking systems. But would they always be free from corruption? We are human, full of personal weaknesses. I do think, though, that without a government, these corruptions could be addressed and not run the risk of becoming systemic. There are lots of free resources available online for Emma Goldman's writing and on anarchism. I have included their links in the show notes. Also, listen to the bonus episode for an interview with Ruth Kinna, author of The Government of No One, The Theory and Practice of Anarchism. If you want to learn more about other writers in the She Speaks Volume series, sign up for my monthly newsletter. The newsletter is a journal of Feral Culture Lab projects, productions, and explorations, with topics ranging from fairy tales to witchcraft, magic, myth, and meaning, and the history according to women. A link for the newsletter is also in the show notes. Before devoting herself full-time to her speaking arrangements, 
on the publishing of her magazine, Mother Earth News, Emma Goldman trained and worked as a nurse and then as a midwife. My profession of midwife was not very lucrative. Only the poorest of the foreign element resorting to such services. Those who had risen in the scale of material Americanism lost their native diffidence together with many other original traits. Like the American women, they too would be confined only by doctors. $10 was the highest fee, and the majority of the women could not pay even that. But while my work held out no hope of worldly riches, it furnished an excellent field for experience. It put me into intimate contact with the very people my ideal strove to help and emancipate. It brought me face to face with the living conditions of the workers, about which until then I had talked and written mostly from theory. Their squalid surroundings, the dull and inert submission to their lot made me realize the colossal work yet to be done to bring about the change our movement was struggling to achieve. Still more impressed was I by the fierce, blind struggle of the women of the poor against frequent pregnancies. Most of them lived in continual dread of conception. The great mass of the married women submitted helplessly, and when they found themselves pregnant, their alarm and worry would result in the determination to get rid of the expected offspring. It was incredible what fantastic methods despair could invent. Jumping off tables, rolling on the floor, massaging the stomach, drinking nauseating concoctions, and using blunt instruments. These and similar methods were being tried, generally with great injury. It was harrowing, but it was understandable. Having a large brood of children, often many more than the weekly wage of the father could provide for, each additional child was a curse, a curse of God, as Orthodox Jewish women and Irish Catholics repeatedly told me. After such confinements, I would return home sick and distressed, hating the men responsible for the frightful condition of their wives and children, hating myself most of all because I did not know how to help them. I could, of course, induce an abortion. Many women called me for that purpose, even going down on their knees and begging me to help them for the sake of the poor little ones already here. They knew that some doctors and midwives did such things, but the price was beyond their means. I was so sympathetic. Wouldn't I do something for them? They would pay in weekly installments. I tried to explain to them that it was not monetary considerations that held me back. It was concern for their life and health. I would relate the case of a woman killed by such an operation and her children left motherless. 
but they preferred to die, they avowed. The city was then sure to take care of their orphans, and they would be better off. It was this period of her life that taught Emma how critical access is to birth control and to safe abortions, a cause she would later campaign and come under fire for. Emma Goldman devoted her life to fighting for the freedom of the individual, but her, auto- but her autobiography reveals a different woman than the intense political activist and agitator. She was also a remarkably sensual woman, passionate, even romantic. I had every reason to be satisfied with the Milwaukee response and to be happy in the circle of my good comrades. Yet I was restless and discontented. A great longing possessed me, an irresistible craving for the touch of the man who had so attracted me in Chicago. I wired for him to come, but once he was there, I fought desperately against an inner barrier I could neither explain nor overcome. After my scheduled meetings, I returned with Reitman to Chicago. The police were no longer on my trail, and for the first time in weeks, I was able to enjoy some privacy, to move about freely, and to talk with friends without fear of being under surveillance. To celebrate my release from the everlasting presence of detectives, the doctor took me out to dinner. He spoke of himself and his youth, telling me of his wealthy father who had divorced his mother and left her in poverty to shift for herself and her two children. The boy's wanderlust had asserted itself at the age of five always luring him to the railroad tracks. He ran away at the age of 11, tramped over the United States and Europe, always close to the depths of human existence, to vice and crime. He had worked as janitor in the Chicago Polytechnic, where the professors took an interest in him. He had married at the age of 23, and was divorced soon after a child had come from the short union. He spoke of his passion for his mother, the influence of a Baptist preacher on him, and of many adventures, some colorful and some bleak, all of which had gone into the making of his life. I was enthralled by this living embodiment of the types I had only known through books, the types portrayed by Dostoevsky and Gorky. The misery of my personal life, the hardships I had endured through the weeks in Chicago, seemed to vanish. I was carefree and young again. I craved life and love. I yearned to be in the arms of the man who came from a world so unlike mine. That night at Jampolsky's, I was caught in the torrent of an elemental passion I had never dreamed any man could rouse in me. I responded shamelessly to its primitive call, its naked beauty, its ecstatic joy. The day brought me back to earth and to the work for my ideal, which brooked no other god. It is such a pernicious myth in our culture that feminists are hard and hate men, that women who are ambitious or driven by anything other than motherhood are not feminine. 
then what is feminine, except for what we have been taught feminine is? On the Sunday of my first lecture, a sealed note was left at my hotel for me. The anonymous writer warned me of a plot against my life. I was going to be shot when about to enter the hall, he assured me. Somehow, I could give no credence to the story. Not wishing to cause my comrades any anxiety, however, I did not mention the matter to my friend C.V. Cook, who came to escort me to the hall. I told him that I preferred to go alone. I was never more calm than as I walked leisurely from the hotel to the meeting place. When within half a block of it, I instinctively raised to my face the large bag I always carried. I got safely into the hall and walked towards the platform, still holding the bag in front of my face. All through the lecture, the thought persisted in my brain. If I could only protect my face. In the evening, I repeated the same performance, holding my bag to my face all the way to the hall. The meetings went off well without any sign of the plotters. For days after, I tried to find some plausible explanation for my silly action with the bag. Why had I been more concerned about my face than about my chest or any other part of my body? Surely no man would think of his face under such circumstances. Yet I, in the presence of probable death, had been afraid to have my face disfigured. It was a shock to discover in myself such ordinary female vanity. I think Emma Goldman's vision for an anarchist future is also present in Virginia Woolf's sentiment in Three Guineas, which I will cover in the next episode of She Speaks Volumes. It is a bit of a challenge right now to produce to a schedule as I need to pay the actors, so again, consider donating through the Buy Me A Coffee link. If you want to be notified of upcoming episodes, subscribe to the newsletter at feralculturelab.com. Mm-hmm.